Hello, and welcome to the 58th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg of Blue Frontier with my co-host, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein of the Inland Ocean Coalition. Hello, everyone. We've talked about the ocean climate connection before, most recently with science fiction author Kim Stanley Robinson. Today, we're talking with Peter Fikowski. Peter's an MIT-educated physicist and engineer, entrepreneur, and now author. He's worked at NASA in an AI lab in Palo Alto, taught at MIT, done a lot of impressive things. The name of his new book is Climate Restoration. Peter, we, we normally start by asking people about their early connection to the sea. I wonder if you have any, or in any case, uh, how much you see the ocean playing a role in climate restoration. Yeah, well, thank you. It's great to be here. I look forward to our little chat. Um, you know, my first memory is being in Chesapeake Bay and getting bitten by uh, by uh, fish, by, uh, what do you call them? Uh, seed nettles. Oh, oh. jellyfish. Jelly that's right. That, that's my first recollection of being in the ocean. <laughs> okay, not a great start. <laughs> not a great start. Um, so, um, yeah, you know, with regards to the climate, the ocean is really important because the ocean is about 75% of our planet. And the really great part about it is it's relatively uniform. You know, the land, there's ice, there's rocks, there's a little bit of forest, there's a lot of grass. The ocean um, is basic. a lot of it used to be green. It's now mostly blue. But there's a lot of photosynthesis that goes there, and uh, that's the, the our access to getting uh, CO2 levels back down to what they used to be. So, Peter, when when um, we met um, a couple of months ago, um, and you gave me a signed copy of your book, which I really enjoyed reading, what really struck me about the book was that it was very optimistic, and um, so I wanted to ask you, like. Like, why did you decide to write this book? I mean, we're facing so many climate challenges. What inspired you to take this on? Yeah. Well, um, I was in a seminar about 20 years ago, and I made a mission statement. And it says, and it's been on my wall for 20 years, it says, my mission in life is to leave a world that we're proud of to our children. And so it obviously, it becomes a guiding light for me. And... Uh, I have a software business here in Silicon Valley, and that was nice. Um, I did a lot of advocacy for poverty work, uh, for reducing poverty. We worked to get immuniz the child immunization going in the 80s and microfinance in the 90s. And I realized eventually that, that wasn't gonna, I wasn't going to be proud of the difference of the world I'd leave if uh, we don't deal with the climate. And so then... Then the question is, okay, good. What what would be the condition for satisfaction that I would be proud of that? And it's like, well, I would be proud to leave our children the same climate our grandparents or great-grandparents had. That I would be proud of. I think all of us, all three of us here would. Oh, true. <laughs> and so so once I um, I looked at that, it's a long story. We might go into part of it. Once I could see what the outcome was... And I could then see, well, how would we get there if we want, if we were to get there by 2050? And I could see, oh my gosh, there are pathways to get there. And that's what made the book uh, very optimistic. Um, I have been campaigning for climate restoration since uh, 
2015. I, I gave a, my first seminar at the uh, Paris uh, talks in 2015. Um, and haven't made a lot of progress until the book came out last month. The premise of the book is that we all want to restore a, a climate that humans have survived long term. So what we had when we developed agriculture over the last 10,000 years, everyone wants that. We also and, and we would talk about it if we were con if we thought that was possible and it has now become possible. Similarly, we also would uh, restore a sustainable population if we thought that was possible. And in the book, I talk about that it, it is possible and doable. And so having seeing that we, we do all agree on the goal of restoring the climate and we agree on having a sustainable population, it turns out doing it is going to cost very little. We have the technology, we have the finance, it's maybe $2 billion a year. And all that's missing is people aligning on that we want to do it. So, Peter, you actually um, came up with the criteria for your restoration priorities. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, if you imagine it's the year 2050 and we're, we, we, we've gotten CO2 down below uh, 300 parts per million, the methods we use, they're all going to be financially viable because someone's going to pay for it. They're all going to be permanent removal of CO2 because if it's only a year or five or 10 years, it's not going to make a difference. And uh, they all need to be scalable up to that 50 or 60 gigatons per year. So it needs to be financially viable, permanent and scalable. So I want to jump into probably the most controversial one, um, and that is iron yes. fertilization. So let's let's just talk about that. Um, there's a lot of questions that I think everyone has about it, but um, you seem to think it's a, a good idea. So I, we'd love to hear your, your thoughts on this. And again, a little more detail, just the idea of, of putting iron pellets or iron material in the ocean to increase phytoplankton production, right. um, which creates more nutrients for more life and more life absorbs more carbon. Right. Yeah. So um, everyone hears about growing trees to sequester carbon and then plants in the ocean are, are algae or phytoplankton. And uh, in order to have them grow more, um, it turns out that most of the ocean, as I said, is blue, which is beautiful. I love the blue Hawaiian beaches, but they're not green, right? If it's not green, there's not much photosynthesis happening. So how do you turn blue ocean to green? In most of the ocean, it's a incredibly minute amounts of iron. That's the missing nutrient because obviously lots of sun and lots of water. And it turns out that in most of the ocean, there's a sufficient amounts of uh, nitrogen and phosphorus, but iron is the missing one because it, it does, it's not very soluble. It tends to sink down to the bottom of the ocean. And normally nature uses dust storms, either dust storms or dust from volcanoes that will bring the iron into the ocean surface. And historically whales would go down deep where it sunk and then they would poop the, the iron back out near the surface. And so all of those, well, of course, volcanoes do what volcanoes do, but the dust storms actually have diminished somewhat. And um, it's a long story, but it, 
the increase in CO2 actually reduces the amount of dust in the air. And then, um, of course, we killed off 90% of the, of the whales back uh, in the last century. So tragic. Yeah. Yes. So adding the iron dust, which is, again, just uh, almost identical to a dust storm, but using just rather than all the different minerals, focusing on iron sulfate, I think. I'm not a chemist. I apologize. I think it's some iron sulfate and some iron oxide, and um, which is basically rust. And th- th- that will get the, the phytoplankton growing. And then uh, um, in the ocean, when it grows, eat, some of it gets eaten, some of it just falls down into the depths. But the depths of the ocean have very little oxygen and it doesn't rot. You know, we all know that trees rot on land, but in the ocean they don't. And that's, that's how, um, how our, our planet has generated ice ages. Now, as you said, Vicky, there's a fair bit of controversy here. And so and we, we'll talk about that. But the fundamental thing is that we know our planet has done, has produced ice ages every 100,000 years for a million years, and then some before that. And so we know that this process works. You can look at, look, the scientists look at the seafloor uh, sediment, and they can see when the ice ages happen, there's, there's extra iron in the sediment. Well, you've mentioned this, this has been experimented with in the Southern Ocean, the results in terms of scientific reviews that were done there with iron fertilization were pretty underwhelming. Yes. Um, but the other what you mentioned is, and, and this is now blue carbon is the big issue, how to, how to take down carbon. And, and we know that coastal systems like eelgrasses and salt marshes and uh, kelp forests do it. In terms of the open ocean, what historically has done it is life. Everything from krill, the fecal strings of krill to the great whales yes. have, as you say, pooted out the iron, taken it down to the bottom of the ocean. Um, how about growing back uh, life? How about uh, reducing fishing? And, and this is Sylvia Earle's big thing, creating um, the whales are starting to come back, you know, accelerating uh, the biological pumps by not fishing krill, not overfishing the open ocean. Um creating a, a living system for fertilization. Yeah. Well, the exciting thing about ocean fertilization, uh, they did a test uh, 10 years ago in the Gulf of Alaska, and they used about 70 tons of this iron sulfate dust. And um, it comes out to about uh, a kilogram per square kilometer. So it's like incredibly small amount. And the uh, yeah, they, they discovered... The, as expected, in a couple of days, the phytoplankton grew. Um, you can actually smell it. They tell me it smells like mown grass, new mown grass. And then um, the fish appeared, whales appeared. Um, and I wasn't there, so I can't vouch for that. Other than the three or four people I talked to who were on the ships all said the same thing. And I, I have audio recordings of it. Um, but... Most interesting is the next year, the, the fish harvest, the, the pink salmon harvest went up four to five times in Alaska. And that's huge. And then more interestingly, the, the, I forgot which whale they have there, but uh, that, the whale that, that gives birth there, they had four or five, or that, I forgot the numbers, but they had a lot more whale births three years later after the gestation period. And so 
if you think about it, the best way to grow fish in the ocean is to feed them. They have lots of eggs. So it's not what's the limiting factor is the food. It's not the number of fish. Yeah, we talked about overfishing, and obviously it's a bad thing, but it's a bad thing insofar as the fish are part of the ecosystem and they need to recirculate the, um, the nutrients. And so the way you start that pump is get the nutrients in. So I wanted to ask you, um, you know, we have a, an, a bloom. We've had a sargassum bloom over the years um, recently, and they're... A bloom. A balloon, like right. lots of yeah, yeah. sargassum. Right. You know, it's coming down through the Mesoamerican yes. reef area, Belize, Mexico. And they are saying that that is because of these dust storms. And it's, yes. there's so much of it that it's creating problems for coastal areas. So back to the, you know, the controversy of, of doing this. Like, That's a great question. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just trying to understand this. Yeah, no, that, that's great. Um, I haven't heard that question, but it's, real, it's a really good example. So the Atlantic, uh, from the Sahara uh, West to the Caribbean, is very green. Because, you, as you said, you have the dust storms from the Sahara bringing all the iron they need. Now, the, what changed in the last decade or two is they've chopped down the rainforest in Brazil, and there, it's now farms. And so now you have all the nutrients coming out of, from, the, f- from the farmland leaching out into the rivers. And that's fertilizing the ocean um, on the northern side of South America. Along with the hotels that are be popping up all along the Mexican coast and with poor sewage and more nutrient in Exactly. And so the point is that the, it's, uh, the, the sargassum there isn't due to iron. That's actually due to the standard nutrients you know, that eventually in the Gulf of Mexico, for example, cause dead air, dead zones. But that, that's a whole different thing than iron in the open ocean. In the open ocean, uh, the amount of iron is about one one millionth of the level in the coastal areas. Because in the coastal, coastal areas, you have runoff from the rivers. In the middle of the ocean, you have nothing other than uh, uh, wind, the, the dust. Right. So you're saying we have over-fertilization, which we're seeing with the sargassum blooms in the Caribbean and the Atlantic. Um, yes. That the Pacific is mostly, as, as marine biologists under, always understand, it's one-third of the planet, but it's mostly kind of an ocean desert in terms of nutrients. Um, and even though we're in a climate emergency, I'm just wondering, you've, you've got great stories from the Gulf of Alaska, but have we got any peer-reviewed science yet to say that this is safe and re- re- reproducible? There's very little peer, there is peer-reviewed science. There were 13 studies done. And as you said, um, uh, some of them were worked quite well. Most of them worked not so well. If you talk to the researchers, you find out that um, they would make their proposals because there are certain places you want to do this. Um, and I, I can't give you the exact conditions, but you want to use a large area so it doesn't dissolve. right? If you, put a, if you sprinkle a kilometer of iron dust in a day, it'll be dissipated. So that's no good. Um, and so they were forced by environmentalists to do it in, le- in not less optimal areas. And so, as expected, they got less optimal results. The Alaska um, group, um, uh, they did it in an optimal area, 
But then the environmentalists came and said, oh, you can't do that. And well, I thought it was the government of, government of Canada that said you can't do it. It's very complicated. So they worked with the government of Alaska for about two and a half years to get all the needed permits. And the government of Canada guaranteed uh, the carbon offsets and they guaranteed you know, that all the permits were done. But then there was this article in The Guardian uh, which, which said, oh, this is terrible. They are disobeying the law. Um, now, you know, 10 years later, the National Academies of Science in December said, well, there's not really any law here, but you know, they talk about it. Anyway, everyone got scared because no one wants to be accused of, of uh, breaking international law. I was talking about this about a month ago, and if you look at the um, the CO2 levels coming out of Mauna Kea, the Keeling Curve, it's called, and if you look after um, Mount Pinatubo volcano in 1991, you see the curve go up at a, at a steady rate, and then it flattens out for a year, and then it goes up at a steady rate again. And if you draw those curves, you can see that um, the dust from Mount Pinatubo, or it could be anything else, but the only logical explanation was the dust, um, caused enough phytoplankton to form and drop in the deep ocean that it absorbed uh, one year's worth, all, yeah, almost exactly one year's worth of uh, emissions back in 91. So the, the point is that it works. You know, we can see it works. Then the question is, how do we get it to work um, and obviously do it safely? Yeah. Well, I guess my other question would be, like, in the process as you are exploring and people are trying this out, um, you know, what are what are the downsides? Like, what happens if there's too much iron in a particular area? Like, how do we manage? Yeah. How do we manage? That? How do you know in advance that you need to change your course? Right. Right. So the downs, you know, all the ex, all the experts say there's a, practically no downside. There, there, there is some, and, and and so it's this though. As I said, the amount of iron you put into the ocean in the deep ocean, you're still a thousand times lower, ten thousand times less iron than you have in coastal regions. So the stuff you see with a sargassum, that's that that's not going to happen because you're not putting it in enough iron. So what does happen is um, you get a lot of fish, and that's, you know, most people like that. You get a lot of <laughs> whales. Again, most people like that. Yeah. Uh, it's a side effect, right? <laughs> it's, but it's a good side effect. But then what happens anytime you get uh, life happening, you also have decay happening. And so nature knows that when you, when you do this, you get oxygen-starved areas. Anytime you have a volcano and you have the phytoplankton growing, you, downstream you have some oxygen-starved areas. And the fish you know, and nature know how to deal with it. And so again, it depends on how you look. If you, if you just blindly say, I like oxygen, then that's a bad thing. If you say, I like nature, it's not a bad thing because nature knows how to deal with it. It's sort of like inhaling and exhaling. Well, it's it's like with the volcanoes. They also put sulfates in the atmosphere, which cool down every time you have a major volcanic uh, eruption. You have cooling in the atmosphere. And yet uh, nobody argues at this point, we may have to in the future, to uh, fill the atmosphere with sulfates to cool it. Um, there is this There is this sense that the ocean's kind of out of sight, out of mind. And so we fertilize North American crops. And then with surplus synthetic fertilizers running, falling gravity down the Mississippi, we end up growing this 
second crop of algae every year in the Gulf of Mexico. And there's now 500 coastal dead zones around the world. Um, I, I guess at this point, you know, we're probably going to have to do a lot of ecosystem restoration and also look at other alternatives. Um, I, I know that uh, you do look at other alternatives in the book because uh, Vicky was telling me that. And I'm just curious, curious what what some of your other. Right. So, OK, so iron, there's still a lot to be studied and looked at. And um, that's definitely one of your climate restoration recommendations. Let's go to seaweed and uh, marine permaculture. Seaweed grows very quickly, and a lot of it sinks, just like with the phytoplankton. In uh, the two key seaweed types for this, one, one is the sargassum. You get phenomenal amounts of sargassum. You could get a, a gigaton per year of sequestration from that sargassum, where you can process it, you get some valuable chemicals and food and energy from it, and a lot of, it, uh, a lot of the carbon you can sink. And then with kelp, uh, this uh, uh, Brian von Hertzen has uh, developed these kelp arrays. So kelp is like sargassum, except that it has to grow on something. It has to attach. And so he makes these, these uh, uh, tubes. Um, he, he makes an array of tubes in the open ocean where he attaches the, the, the uh, kelp. And it grows very rapidly. And then he harvests uh, some of it, um, and then the rest falls. What he harvests becomes food, uh, feed for animals, um, and a, just a wide range of chemicals that are really valuable. And with this, the sale of the chemicals from, and food from the uh, kelp and the sargassum pays for the whole process so that you're not asking the government to do something that's only going to benefit future generations um, and not the current voters and taxpayers. So it becomes a commercial thing with people like you and me who have children and we want to do things that are good for the children. I'd love to actually go through your four things because I want to jump back in and get a little bit more detail on the artificial or synthetic limestone. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, the, the uh, synthetic limestone is separate from the cement. Concrete is is ninety percent sand and and rock, mostly limestone, and ten percent cement. Uh, the cement, you, you know, there's things you can do to make it lower carbon. But what's exciting about uh, using synthetic limestone, where you're pulling the CO two from the air, um, or or from the water. If you pull CO two from the water, it eventually comes back out of the air because it the the CO two dissolves back and forth from the air into the water, just like in a a glass of soda, and um, you know the bubbles in the soda come out, and so um, the with uh, the limestone, um, a cubic meter, uh, a cubic yard, or a cubic meter of concrete using the synthetic limestone will sequester a ton of CO two in that synthetic limestone rock. It's you know, calcium carbonate, which by weight is almost half CO two. And so it, it, that will cancel out the, the cement emissions totally by a, a factor of, I think, four. So, be, so the concrete becomes carbon sequestering. It turns out that if you use this carbon, this synthetic limestone, the, a building made out of concrete will sequester far more carbon than a wooden building. 
It's surprising. But if you do the math... How do you make or get artificial limestone? I, I'm, I'm not a chemist, so I can't explain. And you wouldn't want me to explain the chemistry, even if I could. I mean, you describe it in your book. I just wanted you to describe it. Essentially, they, they dissolve the various chemicals into a, into a solvent. Um, they uh, use an ammonia solution that will capture CO2 from the air, and uh, it'll uh, deposit it as, uh, as limestone rock. It's all, basically, it's just that. It's, it's not a complicated process. It's complicated to get it to work exactly right so you get the right hardness. Right to do what a oyster to get the controls that an oyster has is hard, and that's where the hard work was. But once you have a way to control it, control the chemistry, the temperature, and the pH, then it's very easy. And finally, what's your fourth solution? The fourth solution is is methane oxidation, and so once we've gotten the CO two out of the air then we realize that about a third of all the global warming is coming now from methane. And uh, at the same time that we're trying to reduce emissions you know, from wetlands, from landfills, from fracking, from you know, rice pr production produces enormous amounts of methane. Animal farms. Melting tundra. Yeah. So at, at first I was hoping we could reduce that. And I realized that 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 wasn't going to happen. It turns out that methane, it, you, if you know the chemistry, methane has a half-life in the atmosphere of about eight years, that it oxidizes from uh, various chemical reactions in the air. And so we said, well, if we can double that oxidation rate, then we can reduce the methane level in the atmosphere back to pre-industrial levels. And it turns out that one of the path, there are two pathways that nature oxidize, uses to oxidize methane. One of them is OH radical, a hydroxyl radical. The other is a chlorine radical, just a chlorine atom. And um, if you can attach a, a chlorine to iron, iron again, um, and then the, the sunlight will, in sunlight, it'll free a chlorine atom. That chlorine atom will oxidize methane. And then after it's oxidized the methane, the iron will pull it back into for storage in the iron chloride. And what's that mean in a practical way? How would you apply that? So that means that we can reduce this, the methane levels by a factor of two in probably five years for a cost of a, a billion, about a billion dollars a year. It's phenomenal. Again, uh, we, there's, there's development that needs to be done. It was just three days ago I had a Stanford professor here in my lab, and we demonstrated it for the first time you know, in, in a lab that was 15 by 15 feet, and you could actually see the, the methane level go down by 1% an hour uh, using this technique. What would this look like in the field? It looks like um, evaporating the iron chloride, and iron chloride is a common chemical used in, uh, in water purification. It's also used in etching uh, circuit boards, but um, it's a very common chemical. It's just iron and chlorine. Chlorine, think of salt and iron. Well, we all know you need iron you know, to live. And uh, so you evaporate the iron chloride into, uh, um, into uh, ship exhaust. And so it goes up into the air, distributes in the atmosphere, very low concentration, but you have lots of uh, UV light from the sun, which will cause that, that catalytic reaction that'll oxidize it. 
And then um, the next time it rains, the rain will wash it all down into the ocean. And of course, the, the funny thing is that you say, well, wait a minute, that's going to also do iron fertilization in the ocean. And it does to some degree. The calculations say that it's not significant, but we won't know. You know, if, if it's too much, you stop it. And then oh, a couple of weeks later, you're done and everything goes back to normal. So it sounds like, I mean, just to kind of capture yes. the whole essence of your book, you're basically saying if we reduce our carbon emissions and we try to follow the Paris Accord, that is not going to be enough. So you've been proposing these other ideas to actually really, you know, get us on the path for, I guess you, what your, your goal is, you know, a healthy planet, yes, healthy animals, healthy people that we can all live together. This 10,000 year period we've been through, which is a one of a very stable climate that's been very good for human civilization and millions of other species um, we've done this chemistry experiment that we've thrown it out of whack. We've, we've created yes. a, a crisis. And so it's very interesting to look at how we not only, as you say, get to net zero, but try and bring carbon down to the level that, you know, works for many species, including our own. Well, you know, the, the, the planet will survive no matter what. You know, what, we, what. At some point, we'll go extinct. And when we go extinct, nature will just blossom, right? That's just... If you've ever been to a vacant lot, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yep. And so uh, I'm not worried about nature. We want that nature we had for the last 10,000 years. That's a particular nature. The CO2 level today is what T-Rex liked. I'm, I have nothing against T-Rex, but you know, I'm a home team guy. I say I want the, the climate that humans like. So with that, I want to thank you so much for being with us today on the Rising Tide Ocean podcast. Um, I wish you lots of luck with these innovative ideas and David and I will be following um, the progress and thank you for being here, it was great. You're welcome, thank you very much, it's been a pleasure. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helbart and myself, Vicki Nichols Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support is provided by Studio Cape May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbark. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at www.bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, tear Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.